Good morning, Faith Family. Morning. Say hello to those in our live venue. The pastor with hair is back. Was that a dig? Hey, he took shots at me last week, all right? In fact, he even said that he was jealous because I had hair, right? I don't know how much longer I'm going to have hair, but hey, can I just say what an incredible job Pastor Roger did last week. That, I was so fed, so fed by that sermon. And it, I tell you, it's very, very abnormal that you get to serve alongside with the guy who was leading in this position for 23 years at this fate family. And we actually like each other. <laughs> I know, it's a shock. It, it, it's a God thing, folks. It really, really is. And just was so, so grateful for his word last week. Well, today we're in Acts 12. And so if you have a Bible, would you please turn there and stand for the reading of God's word as we continue working our way through the book of Acts, looking at what a life on mission, a church on mission is ultimately about. And this morning, I'm just going to read the first five verses of Acts chapter 12. But Lord willing, we will try to cover uh, most of the entire chapter. Luke writes here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in verse 1, about that time Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. When he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. When he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him to over four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending that after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. This is God's word. Pray with me, please. Father, thank you for giving us your word. It, week after week after week, it instructs us, it teaches us, equips us, conforms us to the image of Jesus. Lord, come speak to us again this morning. May we once again, will we continue to see what a life on mission is ultimately about. And, I, and God, I'm just asking for clarity this morning. Um, every life here is headed in some direction. The question is, is it the right direction? So expose that in our hearts this morning. That's my prayer in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen. Amen. You can be seated. Does history repeat itself? You ever been in one of those moments where you thought, I've been here before? You thought you were like in the middle of same song, different verse. You ever experienced deja vu all over again? That was the uh, question that was actually put forth in an article that I read some time ago. And the way that the article put forth the question, does history repeat itself, was by giving some similarities, some comparisons between the life of Abraham Lincoln and the life of John F. Kennedy. Some of you may be familiar with the similarities between these two men. If you're not familiar with them, you're going to find these things, I think, like I did, very, very interesting. Like, for instance, Lincoln was elected to Congress in 1846, Kennedy in 1946. Lincoln became president in 1860, Kennedy in 19. 
1960, both of them lost a child while they were serving in the White House. Both of them were assassinated on a Friday before a major holiday in the company of their wives. Both were replaced by men named Johnson, Andrew Johnson and Lyndon Johnson. Lincoln's killer went by three names, John Wilkes Booth. Kennedy's killer went by three names, Lee Harvey Oswald. Booth shot Lincoln in a theater and ran to a warehouse. Lee Harvey shot Kennedy from a warehouse and ran to a theater. Lincoln was shot in Ford Theater. Kennedy was shot in a Lincoln made by Ford. <laughs> All right, so that's probably stretching it a little bit right there. I... Wow. Lincoln's secretary was named Kennedy. Kennedy's secretary named Lincoln. And it went on and on. Things that make you go... Hmm. Hence the question, does history repeat itself? What do you think? Well, there's a sense in which history doesn't repeat itself. The Bible teaches that history is linear. There's a beginning and there's an end. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and there's going today when he consummates all things and brings them to completion, and in the middle, our God sovereignly reigns. History started somewhere, and it's going somewhere, and in that sense, it doesn't repeat itself. But there is another sense in which history does repeat itself. It's why we've kind of had the deja vu experience before. In fact, the writer in the book of Ecclesiastes, one of my favorite books in the entire Old Testament, looks at creation. He says, here's what I see. Generation comes, generation goes. The sun rises and it goes down. The streams continually pour into the sea. He looks at life and gives that famous passage that's usually taken out of context at funerals and says, you know what? There's a time to be born and a time to die. A time to love, a time to hate, a time to plant, a time to pluck up, a time for war, a time for peace. In other words, there's a pattern, an ongoing pattern to life. And he says this, this is kind of his summary statement in chapter 1, verse 9. What has been is what will be. What has been done is what will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. Sometimes life feels like the never-ending rent cycle of a washing machine. Like somebody hit the repeat button and forgot to turn it off. Deja vu all over again. History repeating itself. And it's precisely what's happening in Acts chapter 12. Look at verse 1. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. And here's what some of you may be thinking. Oh, I see. I, now I get your introduction. The whole idea of deja vu, the whole idea of history repeating itself. That's right, the church is facing persecution again. 
I remember your sermon a few weeks ago, play along, when you said, there is no mission without persecution. I get it. Deja vu. Well, it's true. The church is facing persecution again. And I am glad that you were listening several weeks ago. But there's something else going on here. You ever heard the name Herod before? Does it ring a bell? In fact, you do realize that there are several Herods in the Bible. There's Herod the Great. He's the Herod when Jesus was born. There's Herod Antipas. He's the Herod when Jesus is on trial. There's Herod known as Agrippa I. He's the Herod of Acts chapter 12. In fact, we're actually going to meet another Herod later on in Acts chapter 25. What's the point? Let's just say that Herod's had more in common than JFK and Abraham Lincoln. What was true for every Herod was this. Anything that threatens my kingdom dies. Herod the Great, threatened by the birth of Jesus, what's the result? The death of babies. Herod Antipas feels like he's going to lose a little bit of face with his dinner guest. So he orders the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Herod Agrippa I feels threatened by Christianity in Acts chapter 12. And so he kills James with a sword. He puts Peter in prison with the intent to do the same. Does history repeat itself? You bet it does. Herod is synonymous with a life willing to do anything to protect your kingdom. And in that sense, your name doesn't even have to be Herod. Because that's not just true at the birth of Jesus, at the trial of Jesus, and here in Acts 12. That's been true ever since the beginning. Angelic beings, the Garden of Eden, the Tower of Babel, Israel and the law. Jesus comes, but the darkness doesn't want the light because they love their evil deeds. The disciples are sent out in the book of Acts, and they are persecuted. In fact, I don't even have to look very far to see a Herod. Sometimes I see one in the mirror. The desire to protect your kingdom is always greater than the desire to advance God's. And that is the issue in Acts 12. History is repeating itself, but we don't just need to see this as a Herod thing. We need to see this as a personal thing. Namely, I'm on a mission, but whose mission am I on? Is it a mission to build and protect my kingdom or is it a mission to advance God's? And that's what Luke's trying to show us, right? The last few weeks, Stephen is willing to suffer and die. Philip embraces divine interruptions. Peter does the unthinkable in associating with Gentiles. Barnabas encourages and affirms rather than being envious and jealous. Why? Because every one of those men finally realized something. Every eye right here. 
my life isn't about me. You, you know that, right? God has given you life not to make much of you, but to make much of Him. That's why you exist. That's your mission. Will you choose to accept it? And these people like Stephen and Peter, they get it, but insert Herod into the narrative. And what do we see? Among the backdrop of those trying to advance God's kingdom is a man trying to hold on to his. Do you see that? This means yes, and this means yes, right? It's mission and anti-mission. Herod is the antithesis. He's the anti-type of a life on mission. So here's what I'm going to do for the rest of the three hours we have together. I was out last week. Give me a break, all right? Is I want to show you what a life looks like that's attempting to build its own kingdom, Herod, and what a life looks like that's trying to advance God's kingdom, the disciples. Can we do that? We're going to. All right, so let's look. First, I want to give you four signs of a way you know that you're being driven to build your own kingdom, namely like Herod. The first is this, is that you love, you desire, you feast on the praise of others. Verse 3. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, what? When he, Herod, saw that it, what, the death of James, pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of the unleavened bread. In other words, what's going on here? Why does he arrest Peter? Why? Because he hates Christianity. Because uh, he's an atheist. Because he has 666 tattooed on his forehead. No. He arrests Peter. Because if they loved him for killing James, imagine what they'll say about him when he kills Peter. He doesn't hate Christianity. He just loves self. He's on a glory mission. But it's his glory. And so... Listen to what they said about me. Oh, my ears are tingling. I just love it. They think I'm so great. Arrest Peter and I'll do the same to him. Because I can't get enough of this praise. Which means this very, very profound thing practically for us. To be in opposition to the mission of God, you don't have to be a Christian killing king. You can be a church going Christian who's simply living for the wrong glory. I know of no better way to illustrate this than to, to show you a clip that I have shown before, and I don't typically like to repeat clips, but this, I repeat this clip every chance I get because it is so incredibly practical at illustrating how we all have this desire for praise. It's Brian Regan's dinner party. Take a look. I was at a dinner party recently. A bunch of people that I don't know one guy talking plenty for everybody. Me, myself, right? And then I, and then myself, right? Me, me. I couldn't tell this one about I because I was talking about myself, and then me, 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 me. Beware the me monster. 
So I tried to jump in with a little story. I don't want to just sit there the whole night. Right when I'm done with my story, this guy goes, that ain't nothing. Didn't mean to waste everybody's time. Telling my nothing story. Here, let Marco Polo speak. He's back with tales of adventure. My story ain't nothing. Maybe it wasn't, because I made the mistake of trying to tell a story about having only two wisdom teeth pulled, and I learned a lesson. Don't ever try to tell a two wisdom tooth story, because you ain't going nowhere. Before wisdom teeth, people are going to parachute in and cut you off at the pass. Halt! Halt with your two wisdom tooth tail! You will never complete one, trust me. I'm trying to tell my story. You know, I had some wisdom teeth pulled. I had, um... I had two, but I had four pulled. Oh, okay. No, five, no, nine. I had nine wisdom teeth pulled. All of mine were impacted. They were all coming upside down. The roots were wrapped around my tongue, coming out my nose. They were tusks. I was a warthog. No anesthesia. They pulled them out with pliers. I was eating corn in the cob that afternoon. Pin the blue ribbon upon his chest. That knocks the socks off of my wisdom tooth tail. Why do people need to top other people? I've never understood it and I see it all the time. Obviously people get something out of it. At best people wait for your lips to stop. Yeah, as soon as... Okay, yeah, you, me! What is it about the human condition? People get something out of that. We laugh because we know it's true. You, me. You, me. What is it about the human condition that gets something out of that? You see, the issue, faith family, is that feasting on the praise of people is not a Herod problem. It's a human problem. And it's anti-mission. Because this mission is not about our glory. A Herod not only feast on the praise of men, but notice how he manipulates situations to his own personal advantage. Verse 4, And when he seized him, Peter, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him. Here it is. Intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. What's going on? If you want Peter dead, why don't you just kill him immediately? Why wait till after Passover? Here's why. Herod knows that during Passover, the Jews are going to be focused on other things. In other words, Herod intentionally manipulates the situation to hold on to Peter till he has everybody's full and undivided attention. Therefore, he'll get more and more and more glory. 
In other words, Herod's the kind of guy that manipulates the details of the story to make sure he's in the best light. The fish wasn't this big. The fish was that big. He's the kind of guy that, uh, sure, he'll have the friendship as long as it's to his advantage. He's the kind of guy that calculates everything in his life to make sure he's never in the red. Why? Because he not only desires praise, he wants to make sure that he's always the one with the advantage. Number three, notice how he uses his power. In verse 19, we see that Peter has now been released. Uh, verse 19 says that Herod searches for him, but he can't find him. So what does he do? He orders the death of the guards. And then in verse 20, he goes and he's angry at, with these people, Tyre and Sidon. And he came to them with one accord. And having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended upon the king's country for food. So on the appointed day, oh, I bet he loved this. He put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God, not of a man. How does Herod use his power? When he finds out that Peter is dead, he's madder than a mosquito at a mannequin factory, and he's going to make sure that somebody dies. The guards kill him. Then he goes and visits these people at Tyre and Sidon. We have no idea what the issue is between the two, but here's what we do know. Tyre and Sidon are afraid for their lives. They know this. If Herod stays angry, we ain't going to eat. Because here's what I know about Herod, and here's what I know about every Herod who's ever lived. It's that when Herod doesn't get his way, somebody's going to die or somebody's going to starve. Because when you're in this to build your kingdom, people, like a wife, like your children, like a husband, like your friends, like a church, they're really either barriers keeping you from what you want or they're vehicles to get you what you want. And here's the question you need to ask. You ready? Has God given people in your life for you to serve or for them to serve you? Because your attitude on that is going to tell you whose kingdom you're trying to build. But what did Jesus say is the mark of those that follow him? They don't lord it over others. They serve. Why? Because Jesus came not to be served, but to serve. God has given you things. What are you doing with those things? Herod's the kind of guy that feasts on the praise of people. He manipulates situations to his advantage. He uses his power not to serve others, but to bring about consequences in the lives of others when they don't serve him. And all of that is because of this final characteristic of Herod that we see in verse 23. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because, so here's why, he did not give God glory. That's the issue, isn't it? It's why all those other things. It's simply this. Herod lives for Herod. That's his mission. He's on a mission. 
And the flag that flies above the mission is Herod. That's really convicting. Because the truth is, most of us don't walk around our home in royal robes, making our children sing, how great thou art, when we walk in the room. Most of us. Our voicemail doesn't say, you've reached the goddess of Lakeville, leave a message. But I bet you there's a lot of us here today that have a sign over our life that says, mine. Don't you tell me what sexuality is supposed to be. Don't you tell me how to raise my kids. Don't you bring up given. Don't you address any territory in my kingdom that I don't want addressed. Because that's off limits. It just means you have a territory that even, at least in your mind, you won't even let God invade. Herod is a picture of us that has existed since the very beginning. A life that has a desire to build a personal kingdom, not advance God's kingdom. So what does a life that's advancing God's kingdom look like? What are the disciples doing during all this mayhem, during all this persecution? I know, they're watching their favorite 24-hour news channel, and they're ready to fight, they're ready to boycott, they're ready to take up their, their swords and, and fight back and take revenge. It's exactly what we see in verse 6. See, now when Herod was about to bring him, that is Peter, out on that very night, in other words, he's about to die, Peter is taking up his sword. Peter was protesting. How can you do this to me? Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound in chains with guards guarding the prison. Does that strike you as odd? Would you be doing that? Hey, you're going to die tomorrow because the king's going to execute you. So what are you doing on your last night? It's probably not. What's going on? Here's what I think's happening. The man who is quick to pull the sword in the garden, the man who is quick to deny in the courtyard, has finally learned that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience. Why? Please get this. You ain't ever going to be at peace until you realize your life is not about you. Peter can sleep in a prison because he knows... My life exists for God. If he wants me out of here, hello, he'll get me out of here. And he does. He sends an angel and Peter gets out. But he's totally trusting God. His life is at peace. And hear me this morning. One of the reasons why some of us are in a jail cell of worry, of torment, is because our life is about building our kingdom and our life is not going our way. And that's why we are torn up inside. But when you realize this thing isn't about you, your life is about God, you can sleep on the night before your execution. That's very different than Herod, who when his kingdom starts to crumble, is about to go crazy.
What's the second thing we see? Not only are you at peace, but you really pray. I mean, you really pray. Look at verse 5. So Peter was kept in prison, but what's going on with those who are advancing the mission? Earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now, Luke expands that and shows us what that looks like with some comedy. You need to read these verses as comic relief. That's the intent. By the way, there are Christians who just need to laugh. Amen? I mean, come on, man. Smile a little. Laugh a little. You got persecution. You got death. You got all this going on. And Luke inserts comedy. Read it. Verse 12. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. So there's verse 5. Verse 13. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. So Peter's like, hurry up. They're looking for me, right? I don't want to go back to prison. So what does she do? Verse 14, recognizing Peter's voice in her joy, she didn't open the gate. <laughs> but she ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. And they said to her, you are outside your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, ah, it's his angel. But Peter keeps knocking. Hello. And when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. You're intended to laugh. The star of the comedy is Rhoda. I'd say that she's a blonde, but she's Jewish. She's the kind of girl that spends all day putting M&Ms in alphabetical order. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> She's on the, I'm going to get so much email over that one. <laughs> She's a little bit of an airhead. Peter's knocking at the door. She knows it's Peter. She doesn't open the door. She runs back into the living room. Peter's out there saying, really, really? I can get out of maximum security, but I can't get in Mary's house? <laughs> They're in the living room saying, oh, you're crazy. That's not Peter, until she takes him to the gate and realizes it is him. Which means maybe the real comedy isn't Rhoda. It's a group of Christians praying but not believing that God could answer their prayer in such a miraculous way. But the point, dear friends, is this. What you see all throughout the book of Acts is that people who are really on mission to advance God's kingdom are really praying. Because what is real prayer? Yes, you make your request made known to God. Yes, you cast your burdens on Him. But at the end of the day, what trumps every prayer you pray is your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Because this mission ain't about me. He's at peace. They're really praying. And notice thirdly, and you have to see this in the backdrop of Herod, is they, they give credit. 
where credit is due. Peter gives praise to God. I take this from verse 17. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Do you see the difference between Herod? This means yes. Herod would have probably been more like this. You're not going to believe it, man. I broke through the chains and then I tore down the door and there were like a thousand guards waiting on me and I beat them all up with my fists and it was awesome. <laughs> and Peter just says, let me tell you what God did. Let me give glory to who glory belongs. I wonder if that's what your Thanksgiving table will look like this week. That you really praise. You really, really give thanksgiving to God because you recognize that this isn't about you and every good and perfect gift doesn't come from you. It comes from God. There's a thanksgiving message. Praise God with the mindset that you're not God of your life. What you have is because of the grace of God. And Peter is quick to recognize it. Lastly, and I don't take this from the text, I take this from the context is that I believe if you're going to be a life that's more about advancing God's mission, not building your own kingdom, that you're really going to have to believe in the providence of God. In fact, let me say it this way. I'm convinced that you won't believe in the providence of God unless you believe your life isn't about you. I realize in our self-esteem culture this kind of runs against, but I, I would argue that it's actually a good thing that your life isn't about you. It's a really good thing that your life is about God. That's a whole nother sermon. But here's where I take it from the context. Come here for just a moment. Why does James die and Peter doesn't? I thought God was an equal opportunity employer. Why is it that James doesn't get set free the way Peter got set free. And here's the answer. God had a different life for James than he did for Peter. God's going to advance the mission through James's death. He's going to advance the mission through Peter's release. Meaning this. Until you realize that your life isn't about you, it's about God, you're always going to compare your life to other people. And until you realize that your life is not about you, only then can you really believe that God is sovereign over your life. Do you, do you see the difference? Herod, a life that's all about building his kingdom, wants praise, wants everything to his advantage, uses his power against other people because he's full of pride. But the disciples are at peace. They're praying. They're praising God. And I believe trusting that my life is in his hands. It's a clash of two kingdoms. It's been going on ever since the beginning. But I want to end today the way Luke ends because two kingdoms enter the ring of Acts chapter 12, 
but only one is left standing. Verse 23. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down, that is Herod, because he did not give glory to God, and he was eaten by worms. Thanks, Luke, for adding that detail. We needed that image and breathed his last. What's he saying? In fact, the title of today's sermon was Worm Meat and the Mission of Christ. Because that's where building your kingdom ends. It's a long, long drop from feasting on the praise of men to being eaten by worms. But you keep building your kingdom instead of advancing God's kingdom and history will repeat itself in your life. Gamaliel in Acts chapter 5 said this, you can't fight against God and win. The psalmist in Psalm 2, talking about those kings that set themselves up against God, says that God sits in the heavens and he laughs. King Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 4 says, Those who walk in pride, he will humble. God may not pay at the end of every day, but in the end, he will pay. All accounts will be settled, and there will not be any other kingdom standing but the kingdom of God. So, attach your life to the right kingdom. Because your life is either going where Herod's life went or it's going to be used the way the disciples' lives were used. Verse 24, but the word of God increased and multiplied. Only one life will soon be passed and only what's done for Christ will last. You're on mission. Whose mission? Because whose mission you're on determines what your end will be. And Luke is screaming this throughout the book of Acts of what a life lived on mission accomplishes for the glory of God. Acts chapter 2, those who received the word were baptized and added 3,000 souls. Acts chapter 4, many heard and believed and the number of men was 5,000. Acts chapter 5, more believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of men and women. Acts chapter 6, the word of God continued to increase and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. Acts chapter 9, the church throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria was being built up. Acts chapter 11, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Acts chapter 12, but the word of God continued to increase and was multiplied. I want to attach my life to that mission. John Stott says it this way, the chapter opens with James dead, Peter in prison, and Herod triumphing. But it closes with Herod dead, Peter free, and the word of God triumphing. Though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us.
Why? Why? Why is it if we give our life to advancing God's kingdom and not building our own, that our life can be used for amazing things? It's because of this assured victory. Our king, King Jesus, was not eaten by worms. But Psalm 22 says he became like a worm. He was beaten, he was trampled on, he was crucified, and he was placed like Herod into a grave. But three days later, unlike Herod, our king, King Jesus, walked out of that grave to demonstrate to every kingdom throughout the world, my kingdom's advancing whether you're on board or not. Victory in Jesus in the song we sing, it's a reality we embrace. And so why in the world would you spend your life on something that's going to be gone tomorrow when you could spend your life for something that will last forever? You're on mission. The question is whose? This morning, are you like Herod? You're not killing Christians. There's just a big sign over your life that says mine. Or are you like the disciples? You haven't been arrested for your faith, but you're trying every day to live it out. You must answer today whose mission you're on. Why? Because if Herod learned anything in Acts chapter 12, it's this. History has a way of repeating itself. Let's pray. Father, give us clarity this morning as to whose mission we're really on. What a beautiful contrast we see in Acts chapter 12, of a Herod, a life for his own mission, and the disciples, a life for yours. And uh, I just pray, God, that you would work by your Spirit in our hearts and in our lives to take down whatever signs say mine over the territories of our life. Strip us of our glory Give us a mission for yours. I pray that you do that work in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen. Amen. amen.